Welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. This week, we welcome Dr. Paul Offit, Director of the Vaccine Education Center at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and member of the select group advising the FDA on best strategies for the COVID vaccine. So I think it's incumbent upon the CDC to look carefully at the people who are being hospitalized or, or being killed by this virus and identify exactly who they are so that we can really target our booster dosing strategy to those groups. Now, here are your hosts, Mark Maselli and Margaret Flinter. The Biden administration plans to end the COVID public health emergency in May. Is that the right decision? And what big changes could be in the future for COVID vaccines? Dr. Paul Offit is one man at the center of those questions. He serves on the FDA Vaccines and Related Biological Products Advisory Committee. Well, you know, first of all, we, we want to thank you for joining us today. But, you know, to the CDC, is it a little late to be giving them instructions like this? Is this something they should have been doing? Have they been keeping the right information? They've taken a lot of heat uh, over this entire period. Uh, there's been a loss of trust in, in, in the public health system. And I think the CDC is at the lead of this. But is this a new formula for them or, or are they already uh, undertaking some of these? Right. So, um, well, we're certainly in a different place now than we were in 2020, in January 2020, when this virus entered this country. At that time, we didn't have monoclonal antibodies. We didn't have vaccines. Um, we didn't have antivirals. And we had a blank slate in this country for people who were susceptible to the virus. There was zero percent population immunity. Fast forward more than two years and we have monoclonals, we have vaccines um, and we have antivirals. Monoclonals have sort of fallen by the wayside. But um, and we have population immunity that approaches 96%. We're in a much better position than, than we were then. Um, and so what now? I mean, where, where are we going forward? And I, here's the way I would put this together. I think it is fair to assume this virus is going to be with us for decades, if not longer. I mean, the two strains of human coronavirus that were first identified in the 1960s probably entered the human population in the late 1700s and the late 1800s. Flu has been with us since the mid 1300s. This virus is going to be with us for, for a long time. Um, secondly, there will be vulnerable populations moving forward. So we need to identify those populations and make sure that we protect them as best as possible. So I think it's incumbent upon the CDC to look carefully at the people who are being hospitalized or, or being killed by this virus and identify exactly who they are. How old are they? What vaccines have they received? When was their most recent vaccine? Um, did they receive antivirals? Do, did they have comorbidities? If so, which? So that we can really target our, our booster dosing strategy to those groups. I think the hardest thing has, has been separating those who were admitted uh, with COVID versus for COVID. I mean, for example, at our hospital, any child who comes into the emergency department that is then admitted to the hospital for whatever reason will be tested to see whether or not they have COVID. Um, if they have COVID, and even if they're admitted for something else, they're often counted as a COVID admission, and that's not helpful. Um, recently, a, a prominent uh, epidemiology association said, don't test asymptomatic people who come into the hospital to see whether they had COVID, because those are often getting counted as admissions. So I think that's been the hardest thing. I think we suffer from not having a national health system. That's why we often look to places like Israel or Canada, uh, which do have national health systems to kind of try and answer those questions. And that's uh, not the way it should work because those countries aren't the same as ours in terms of ethnic population, age, et cetera. So um, we can do a better job. I, I, I think we should continue to hold the CDC's feet to the fire to provide that information. 
Well, Dr. Offit, the advisory committee that you serve on supports a COVID vaccine consisting of a single composition for everyone, whether currently vaccinated or not. And uh, as you know, many of our uh, our audience know the current approach involves getting two shots of the original vaccine spread out weeks apart, and then one of the new bivalent Omicron boosters at least two months later. Um, take us through the thinking on why the vote in favor of a change. I think mostly for simplicity. Um, so now you basically have the same vaccines that are given both as a primary series and a booster dose. I don't think there's any evidence that um, this uh, bivalent vaccine is going to be dramatically better clinically than what we already had. And the, the reason for that is, 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 is that we have to define what we want from these vaccines. The only reasonable, the only attainable goal for this vaccine is prevention of severe illness. Keep people out of the hospital, keep them out of the intensive care unit, keep them from dying. Um, the, the, the principal immunological component associated with protection against severe disease is really T cells, T helper cells, and especially cytotoxic T cells. The good news about this virus, if there's any good news that can come of a pandemic virus, is if you look at the original strain, the SARS-CoV-2 strain that first came into this country, the Wuhan 1 strain and that original variant D614G, if you look at that original strain, Wuhan 1, and compare it to the current strains like XBB15, there's still 80 to 85% confirmational uh, or, or uh, conservation between those two strains in terms of T-cell recognition. That's why you're still protected against severe disease. I mean, when, when Omicron, for example, first raised its head in Southern Africa, um, it clearly swept across that region and caused a lot of uh, illness, but there was a disproportionate uh, rise in, in, in hospitalizations, which you didn't see, or deaths, because people were still largely protected against severe disease. You know, one, one troubling figure in all of this is only 15% of people eligible for the COVID booster shot that targets the Omicron variant that you described have gotten it. I, I really wonder if this is an indictment on the public health community. Where, where have we gone wrong in our message and how much of an increase uh, in Americans receiving the COVID vaccine can we expect with the new single shot makeup? Not much more would be my prediction. <laughs> we'll see. Um, I, I just think that the, the, I'm not sure this is a failure of public health messaging as much as it's a perception by the public that this pandemic is largely over. I, I think that, I mean, I rode the subway yesterday to uh, see the Eagles 49ers game and that subway was packed and no one was wearing a mask. I think, think about where we were two years ago. No one would have done that. We were scared to death of human contact. That's not true anymore. So I think the reason that you're not seeing an uptake in booster dosing, I think is because there's booster fatigue at this point or vaccine fatigue. And I just don't think people perceive this as a risk. And, or at least I'd like to think that those who perceive it as a risk are those who are most likely at risk, which are those high risk populations, people over 75, people who have multiple comorbidities and people who are immune compromised. Those are the risk groups moving forward. Hmm. It's interesting. Maybe those folks are sitting out the Eagles game and watching it from home and saying, yep, nobody else is gonna be wearing a mask on that subway. So I'll sit it out too. Uh, but in, in all seriousness, Dr. Uh, Offit, uh, as we talk with you, uh, the committee recommendations still need CDC approval uh, for the single composition of the vaccine, and that single shot will be the updated bivalent version. Uh, over these last couple of years, we've certainly often seen there can be disagreements between uh, different uh, of the bodies charged with uh, making these decisions. Is there any reason to think that the CDC will not see things uh, as you do? No, no, I, th I think the CDC will approve this um, vaccine. 
as 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 both the priming series to go along with to harmonize it with the booster dosing. I, I think that that will happen. Um, I'm optimistic about where we are. Actually, I think we're we're in a much better place than, than where we were before. And I'm telling you, if I rode the subway yesterday and didn't get COVID, then then <laughs> then I think we're pretty good because it was like I don't know if you've ever been on subways in Japan where they kind of push people in to pack them in so that everybody can fit. It was like that yesterday on the subway or Sunday. Yeah, speaking of Japan, uh, pandemics global. Uh, what are you hearing from your colleagues around the globe in terms of? their efforts? Are we seeing anything that might be considered a best practice and how, how countries are handling it? Uh, what, what do you hear? What do you see? Right. No, I, th I think if there's a failure, I, I think it's the failure to really make sure that that 100 percent of people on this globe have gotten vaccinated. I mean, because that will definitely lessen the risk of severe disease. Uh, this is a short incubation period mucosal infection. Even if 100 percent of the world were vaccinated and even if this virus never created variants, it would still circulate. It would still cause asymptomatic infections. It would still cause mild disease. But such is the nature of a short incubation period virus. I mean, look at rotavirus. Rotavirus is an intestinal pathogen, but it, it like SARS-CoV-2, is a mucosal infection that has a short incubation period. We instituted a vaccine in this country in 2006. The uptake is probably, in babies, the uptake is probably 90 to 95%. And we virtually eliminated hospitalizations from that virus. And that's a virus that is, is uh, stable, that, that doesn't create variants. Nonetheless, the virus still circulates in the community, still causes mild disease in the community. So I think we have to have a reasonable expectation for this, this vaccine in terms of what it can and can't do. But globally, I do think, you know, we have maybe 70% uh, of people in this world who've been vaccinated, but 30% haven't. And we, we need to make sure they're vaccinated. And I think, you know, every year, three and a half to four million children are born in this country who are going to be susceptible to this virus. And we need to make sure I think they get vaccinated. Yeah. Well, Dr. Rafa, we're still in flu season, but became it began months ago, I guess, in terms of uh, people getting their vaccines. What do you think about the advice for Americans to get the flu shot and the COVID vaccine at the same time? I'm sure quite a bit happened this past fall, but we know the FDA is starting a study to look at potential safety concerns that could result from giving the COVID Omicron shots uh, at the same time uh, as the flu shots. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, it, it's we certainly need to have this studied thoroughly before we recommend it to be given at the same time. I think people, many people are giving it at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, what worries me in, about, and this isn't exactly your question, but the, the, the flu analogy has been sort of made with this vaccine, meaning that every year now we, the FDA Vaccine Advisory Committee, like we do in March to pick flu strains for a September rollout, will be meeting in June to, to pick uh, strains for a September rollout for um, SARS-CoV-2 virus vaccines. I mean, the, these two viruses are very different. I mean, when uh, we pick flu strains, we look at countries that have winters that precede ours, Australia, South America, to, to predict what strains come into this country. And we better be right. Because if we miss, if we're wrong on picking the strain, a miss is a mile. And that's happened. If you look in the last 10 years, for example, if you pick the wrong H3N2 strain, which we've done, um, and you get a vaccine that does not match the circulating strain, you have pretty much 0% protection, including against severe disease. That's not this virus. I mean, this virus, you are still largely protected against severe disease if you've been naturally infected or vaccinated or both because of the, the, uh, the conservation of those T-cell regions. So this isn't flu. Uh, flu is a strain-specific phenomenon. That doesn't seem to be true here. So, so I think I don't see the flu analogy for this virus. I think that's a very important point for people to uh, 
here haven't heard it stated so clearly. So thank you, Dr. Offit. But I, I do want to challenge it a little because I thought the mRNA vaccination process really allowed us much shorter time. That in fact, the old model would have been if we missed it by a mile, we were in big trouble. But isn't the development of the mRNA uh, an opportunity to, do a, a, to, to have a second chance here? Or is it still so clunky and cumbersome that we can't make mid-course correction? I thought this was one of the uh, advantages of, of seeing the new process that got developed. You're right. I mean, the mRNA process is, is, is quicker, I think, than, than was, than say, the flu vaccine process. And the flu vaccine, remember, there's a variety of different flu vaccines. There's, you know, the, the sort of inactivated vaccine, which is enhanced for hemagglutinin or aminidase. There's flu block. There's uh, high-dose vaccines. There's squalene adjuvanted vaccines. There's a variety of different flu vaccines. Um, but but look how hard it is to pick strains. I mean, so, for example, um, in in January, February, when, when Omicron BA1 rolled into the United States, both country companies, Moderna and Pfizer, made a BA1 bivalent vaccine. We, so we the FDA Vaccine Advisory Committee, sat down in June 28 to consider the data from that bivalent BA1-containing vaccine, which in the other part of that was the Wuhan 1 strain. Well, by the time we sat down, BA1 was gone. So the thing was, okay, well, let's make a BA4, BA5-containing vaccine and move forward with that. Well, well, now here we are, starting in like you know November, December. BA four was gone. BA five is virtually gone. So, so you know, it's not. This isn't flu. And and I think that, uh, uh, or do we really want to try and chase these variants, um, given that you still are largely protected against severe yeah. disease, no matter what you got, really. Well, Dr. Offit, uh, pivoting just a little bit, you're an author of a new research article in JAMA Pediatrics with a headline, COVID-19 Vaccines in Young Children, Reassuring Evidence for Parents, which I think will be reassuring just that you have that headline. Uh, but tell us, what was the basis uh, for your being able to offer reassuring evidence? And maybe specifically, since uh, parents heard so much about myocarditis as a possible uh, complication of the vaccine, what did you find? Right. So, so when we sit down to make decisions at the FDA Vaccine Advisory Committee, we always base it on only the data that we have. And, you know, for the five to 11 year old, you know, you had studies of a few thousand children, but the, then you've made a recommendation for millions and millions of children. So you don't know whether or not that few thousand children ends up being predictive of what happens in, in, uh, in a larger group. With, with this uh, Watanabe study done that was published in JAMA Pediatrics is it looked at, at millions of children who've received this vaccine. And so there were two things that were reassuring there. One is we didn't know whether this vaccine would prevent this multi-system inflammatory disease of children, this post-infectious inflammatory disease, but it appears to, according to this these data. And also, you didn't really know the instance of myocarditis. You knew that it was highest in that 16 to 17-year-old male, primarily within uh, a few days of that second dose, as high as one in 6,600. But you didn't know for the 5 to 11-year-old. And you were worried because you knew that for that younger male, it was higher than it was, say, for an older male. So what happens when you get younger and younger? Well, the answer here was it was about one in, uh, the instance was like one per 500,000, which is extraordinarily rare and roughly in the same category for your chance of being struck by lightning every year in the United States. You know, I want to uh, ask about President Biden and his declaration, or at least the administration has let, uh, let the uh, public know that they plan to end the public health emergency, hopefully in May, uh, though there is some battling going on um, for extending that. But what are your thoughts? Are, are we past this point now? Uh, where we can move on from the public health emergency and 
What do you worry about uh, if if the May Day uh, date holds? Right, we should probably never make predictions about this virus because you're always wrong. But but I'll I'll try anyway. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, the I, I think. My prediction is that this virus is going to enter the pantheon of winter respiratory viruses, which also cause severe suffering and hospitalizations and death. I mean, two years before SARS-CoV-2 entered this country, um, which was in, in January 2020, um, influenza caused 800,000 hospitalizations and 60,000 deaths. I mean, RSV typically kills between 6,000 to 10,000 elderly Americans every year. Um, parainfluenza causes tens of thousands of hospitalizations and, death, and thousands of deaths. So they're all killers. They're, you know, they're all bad. And I, I, what I see is I see sort of SARS-CoV-2 sort of entering that group, which is interesting in terms of how we move forward, because you could argue, I have friends, for example, who have children and they're trying to decide whether to send them to school. So if they have upper respiratory tract symptoms, they, and they test to see whether they have COVID. And if they don't, they go, great, I can send them to school. But you know, there, there are other viruses out there like RSV, flu and paraflu that also are a problem. And so I think maybe moving forward, the smartest thing to do is for people who are at risk, who clearly would benefit from an antiviral, they should test. And if they're positive, treat with an antiviral. But for everybody else, assume you have a virus which can be uh, uh, severe for other people and, and stay home if you can. And if you can't stay home, then wear a mask when you when you go into work, which is it's sort of done in many uh, countries, say in Southeast Asia. We just It's just not our culture. So good to go with the uh, public health emergency, just with some uh, more detailed instructions for people. I think that's right. I mean, you could argue every year flu is a public health emergency. Right. We don't treat it that way, but it certainly kills tens of thousands of people every year. Mm -hmm. Well, Dr. Offit, I wonder if you could uh, take us inside your practice and that of your colleagues at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Uh, you're seeing parents, you have the recommendation for vaccine uh, against COVID for children six months and older, uh, and those uh, five and older to get the boosters. What happens when a parent says no? Maybe uh, today, take us inside those conversations. Do you have a, a strategy uh, to encourage people, motivational interviewing, just more information? What, what happens when you get the no? Right, well, you can sort of understand it at some level. I mean, it, it, we're talking just about COVID. I mean, you, if you look at who dies from COVID, um, it's it's primarily the, the over 75-year-old nursing home resident. I think 93% of all deaths are in people over 55. But you can die as a child. I mean, if you're less than 18, the number of deaths is in sort of 1,500 range. So it's about a thousand, you're a thousandfold less likely to die as a child than as an, as an older adult. But that doesn't mean that, that it can't happen. And um, so that's what we try and, and, and talk about is that a choice not to get a vaccine is not a risk-free choice. It's just a choice to take a different risk. And this is what that risk looks like. I mean, there are our children, our, our hospital now has about 10 children in the hospital with uh, suffering from COVID. And it's hard to watch especially when, when they've made the choice not to get the vaccine, or the family has also made the choice not to get the vaccine for parents and siblings, because this is preventable. And it's hard to watch a child come in, struggle for breath, you know, being put on face mask oxygen, and then, you know, having to be uh, sedated, in, you know, brought up to the intensive care unit, intubated because of, of pneumonia when it's a preventable disease. So you try and, and make that case of what it looks like to take this different risk. And without being too heavy handed, the most the most dramatic thing to me in, in 2020, when we didn't have anything to, to, to uh, 
specifically prevent this virus uh, infection was was Miss C. I'd never seen anything like that before. I mean, here were children who usually had a, a either an asymptomatic infection or a mild infection that was only picked up because they'd had a friend or family member who had contracted COVID. And then they're fine. They're, the, the, the symptoms go away, they're running and playing. And one month later, they come back to the, to the hospital with high fever, pneumonia, you know, uh, uh, liver involvement, kidney involvement, heart involvement, occasionally going to the intensive care unit with, with severe myocarditis. I've never seen something that dramatic before. And it was primarily the five to 13 year old sort of peaking at the nine year old. And so prevent it. If you can prevent it safely, prevent it. You know, I was thinking about uh, back in 2020 when we didn't have a vaccine and then we thought maybe it was the traditional development. We all learned about something called the mRNA vaccine, which is 20 years old, but nonetheless, it reemerged. And uh, tell me, past COVID, what benefits are we seeing from mRNA technology coming up? What, what's what's out there that you're excited about uh, in the in the uh in the research that's going on. Right, certainly the mRNA vaccines for, for SARS-CoV-2 was a perfect fit. I mean, I can tell you, this to me is the greatest single medical advance in my lifetime. And as yeah. you can tell, since you see me on the screen, I'm old, so my lifetime includes the <laughs> development of the polio vaccine. Um, it's remarkable and it's held up. I mean, now two plus years into this, this uh, mRNA technology, you still have excellent protection against severe disease, assuming you're, you know, you're not in, in a high-risk group. So that's amazing. Will it be as applicable to other, um, in other infections? And so you, you know, actually, when people are worried about mRNA vac uh, the mRNA technology because they think it's new, it's not, as you know, it's not new. I mean, starting in 2005, researchers working on mRNA vaccines, for example, to try and prevent a human immunodeficiency virus. Now people are looking at it as a universal flu vaccine, as a better malaria vaccine. So we'll see. I mean, I'm, you know, we, 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 I trained in an influenza lab many decades ago, and um, the, the, it was a, the guy who was the head of the lab, Walter Gerhardt, said to me something I'll never forget, which is if you want a research career that lasts for the rest of your life, study influenza. So although we talk about, you know, trying to make universal influenza vaccines or an HIV vaccine that works, those, those two viruses have really been resistant to that. And I don't think this is going to be the, the magic, uh, magical answer, but it would be great if it was. So we'll see. I mean, certainly we'll see how it goes moving forward. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Offit, uh, we were looking back to when you joined us in 2021, uh, and you called yourself at the time a vaccine skeptic and said it's fine to be skeptical of anything that you put in your body, but skepticism can go overboard. Uh, and we note that you also uh, made the contribution through your book over a decade ago called Deadly Choices, How the Anti-Vaccine Movement Threatens Us All. What's your take on where we are with that movement at this point? That preceded COVID for sure. Um, certainly uh, mandatory vaccines and immunizations have uh, brought out a lot from that community. But what's your status of what the public health community has done and can do uh, about the anti-vax movement in terms of trying to really protect the public's health going forward, not just from COVID, but from all the things that we have vaccines against? Yeah, I can safely say I was dead wrong in predicting what would happen with the anti-vaccine movement as this virus entered the country, because really the anti-vaccine movement would some, to some extent on its heels. I mean, it, it sort of thrived in the early 1980s with the uh, the uh, 
the uh, airing of a, a show called DPT Vaccine Roulette, claiming that the, the pertussis vaccine caused permanent harm. And it really took off then. And then it went further with the notion that MMR vaccine, the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine caused autism, also untrue. But um, and and then it really started to take its hits. Uh, you know, the, there was there was a more as as data sort of gener was generated showing that these these fears about vaccines weren't true. The anti-vaccine people were more and more marginalized because they had been included on committees like the Advisory Committee for Immunization Practice or the FDA Vaccine Advisory Committee. They had moved into the mainstream and then they were pushed farther and farther away. Uh, to me, the, the, it, I thought the, the death knell was the elimination of a philosophical exemption against vaccines uh, to, to allow for, for uh, a vaccine opt-out in, in California. I, I thought that really marked the end. But then what happened was, um, and it was never a politics to this. I'm on the left, it was kind of all things natural. Don't put anything into my body that's uh, that's unnatural, that's sort of, you know, uh, gluten-free, casein-free, bisphenol A-free, dolphin-free crowd. And and you saw that with the, the sort of measles outbreak in Southern California in 2010. That was a liberal community in, in the Disney land uh, area that, that allowed for that. And on the right, it was always, you know, libertarian government off my back, don't tell me what to do uh, thing. It's become solely that. I think the, the anti-vaccine movement hooked in to, to the Republican right, really, on this uh, with, you know, this don't tell me what to do. Don't mandate anything. And, and a lot of the support came from that. And this is the first infectious disease in human history where your political affiliation determines whether to some extent you're going to live or die. I mean, hence the name red COVID. Um, I've never seen anything like that. They, they really hooked into that. And, and during the insurrection in January 6th, there were the anti-vaccine activists, you know, a couple blocks down the road with their platform and their, their folks. I mean, it, and, and so that's what surprised me, that it's really hooked in to that government off my back notion that is prevalent, at least among some in this country. Yeah, though most of those leaders in the House and the Senate uh, who might uh, espouse that as soon as they're sick, they're off to their Reed Medical Center getting great, great care and listening to the providers who they would listen to on this issue. But that's another matter. Uh, I want to have one final question. Dr. Lena Wen stated in the Washington Post that the medical community is, quote, overcounting the amount of COVID deaths and hospitalizations. And she cited sources claiming that most patients diagnosed with COVID are actually in the hospital for some other illness, uh, obviously set off a firestorm. What do you think of her point of view? Yeah, so the, the data, the only data I've really seen on this, um, at least in published form, was a study by Clan uh, Kale, ANN, out of Massachusetts General Hospital. Where what they, that group did was they they evaluated um, medical records. They went through medical records one by one to try and answer the question: if they were diagnosed with COVID, were they receiving steroids like dexamethasone? Were they receiving supplemental oxygen for their pneumonia? And they found that roughly 26 percent of those uh, uh, case reports, and they were looking at in Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, and Illinois, that, that, that they were misclassified as being admitted for COVID, and it could vary anywhere from 0% to 75%. So I think I think there is some element of that. It's unclear to me how common that is. I mean, you, now you've had sort of pushback on the other side saying, if anything, uh, COVID uh, hospitalizations and deaths are underrated. But but it's really hard to, to evaluate in some ways, because let's suppose you have a severe heart disease or, or or, or uh, lung disease, and then 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 COVID sort of puts you over the top. Right. Is that a COVID death? I mean, much in the same way that that flu did that or RSV did that, and 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 so it's defining that has been difficult. But I, I guess just looking at what goes on in our hospital, I can tell you things are a lot better from where they were. 
And that's the good news. Dr. Offit, we know you and the committee will meet again in a few months to select a strain for the vaccines that will be rolled out this fall. And we hope that you will join us again once that decision is made. Thank you for being with us today. And to our audience, you can learn more about conversations on healthcare and can sign up for our updates at chcradio.com. Dr. Offit, thank you so much again. My pleasure. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare is recorded in the Knowledge and Technology Center studios in Middletown, Connecticut, and is brought to you by the Community Health Center, now celebrating 50 years of providing quality care to the underserved, where healthcare is a right, not a privilege. CHC1.com and CHCRadio.com.